Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read to American Writers 100 Pages at a Time using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at John Steinbeck's To a God Unknown. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episode where I say a little bit about the context of the novel and look at its first 15 chapters or so. Um, I went back and I reread a few sections and I realized I made a mistake. Um, I, the murder of Benjay by Juanito um, actually happened while Benjay was seducing Juanito's wife. Um, There's something that happened later on that made me think I must have misread that because at first I thought it was just um, stealing. I, I guess I read that section a little too fast. Uh, here's what it says back in chapter 12. Why Benji was a thief, she said. And I don't want the things he stole very much. He stole the precious little decency of girls. Why he drank to steal a particle of death, and now he has all of it. This had to happen, Elizabeth. If you throw a great handful of beans at the upturned thimble, one is pretty sure to go in. Um, and then it goes on. It, later on, it explains a little bit more um, what happened. So, yeah, he was actually seducing Juanito's wife. And that, that puts his death in a lot more context, and it puts... Uh, the role of Alice in this novel in a little bit more context. She sticks around after Juanito kind of goes on the lam, um, leaves town for a while. She sticks around to help around the house. Um, so, so she has a deeper connection to this, this family, the Wades, the Waynes. Anyways, um, so let's continue on. So a, as you know from the first part of this, the first uh, episode about this book, this is a novel about a farmer, Joseph, goes to the west goes to california to start a homestead he brings his brothers out there and they kind of make a a ranch and they they raise mostly mostly cows right and over the course of the novel joseph becomes increasingly obsessed with with land with um kind of a land ethos almost a paganism in his um in his religious beliefs he turns his back on christianity uh one of his brothers is a very practical hard-headed guy his wife's very much the same we have uh, he's got a, a another brother that guy's thomas he's got another brother burton who's very religious and the main antagonist within the family of joseph's growing uh, religious speculation and we had the younger brother benjay who as i just suggested was was murdered by juanito and he was a drunkard and a womanizer and, and all sorts of of problems um Joseph tends to see things in the t- terms of the cycles of nature, the inevitability, things just natural. Even when his brother was killed, he, his response to it as well, it's just natural that you, you know, killed him. That's just the way things are. Um, there's another character of, s- other characters, of course, all these characters have wives. Uh, Joseph's the final, last to marry. He marries this woman, Elizabeth, and she plays a major role in the second half of the novel. Um, and she begins to take on bits of Joseph's religion, even though she ultimately fears it and fears his obsession with the land. You also have a tree, a tree which is the main source of worship, if you will, for for Joseph, a tree that he loves, a tree he wants to be around. He talks to them. He almost gives praise to this tree, and it becomes, in his view, a symbol of the land. Um, so chapter 16 begins. There's a conflict over a fiesta that's coming 
basically to the ranch, to the to the town. It's going to the reason it's a problem. It's going to require a Catholic altar. Altar. Most of the people nearby are Catholics, um, and they're going to put up a Catholic altar for I think it's Father Angelo to do, you know, his religious services there. Uh, this pisses off Burton quite a lot. He refuses to participate in the fiesta because he doesn't want anything to do with Catholic rituals. The other brothers are sort of just looking forward to a good time. Um, so as kind of hard-headed as Thomas is, he's also very practical and, and he's capable of, of enjoying life. Um, Joseph is too, even though he's got this weird religion. He's not, it's not the only thing in his life, of course, even though it's the major theme of the novel. Steinbeck's description of the preparations is really nicely done, I think. We get a real nice sense of community coming together um, across racial and religious barriers. Uh, we have a very similar kind of party, a festival in uh, the novel The Octopus by Frank Norris, where we have Buck Annixter's kind of barn-raising um, party. But there, everyone is, is essentially, is I think, pretty much white. Um, here, you have a much more consciously interracial group of people. Here's a long description. If you have the Library of America version of this, it's on page 265 to 266, but I'll just give you a taste of it. Quote, before sunup, the guests began to arrive. Some of the richer families in surveys with swaying top fridges and others in carts, buggies, wagons, and on horseback. The poor whites come down from their scrabble ranch on King's Mountain on a sled, half filled with straw and completely filled with children. The children arrive in droves and for a time stood around and stared at each other. The Indians walked up quietly and stood apart with stolid, incurious faces, watching everything and never taking part in anything. Okay, so this festival goes on. Joseph enjoys the fiesta and he sees it even in religious terms. At one point, he thinks it'll be sort of a prayer for the rains. So something will come of this. It's a kind of powerful prayer. Of course, it will bring r the rain. Something must happen when, it ch when a charge of prayers let loose. Oh, oh, by the way, this is around New Year's, so this is like a New Year's fiesta. Um, and there's already concerns at this point in the novel about the next year's, you know, about rains. Rains become a major obsession uh, for the characters. There were good rains in November. Um, this following year, it's the following year that's going to have trouble with the rain. But um, So the prayer for rain is going to be a theme in the second half, and a bigger obsession of our characters, particularly Joseph. Now, Thomas and Burton bicker, the two brothers bicker about the fiesta, and Burton even goes over the top in his rejection of the party, calling it at one point uh, a devil worship. Quote, it reminds me of all the devilish heathen practices in the world. So he doesn't think much of, of, of the fact that they're Catholics there, but even more deeply doesn't think much of the fiesta at all. After the fiesta, Elizabeth reveals that she has felt something in the celebration, a kind of collective energy that was greater than the sum of the individual memberships. And there's a very Stein-Beckian theme here of the collective power of a group. He does it in many of his other novels. Certainly in Dubious Battle, you have this theme expressed, the doctor character there. And we'll talk about that in a couple books. But the, the doctor character there, He's fascinated with strikes because he sees that as a point of kind of collective participation and, and cooperation. The way Elizabeth describes it is, it was the excitement, all the people and the music. Well, well, it was strenuous. It was such an odd day. There was an outwardness, the people coming and the mass and the feasting and the dance and last of all the storm. Am I being silly, silly Joseph? Or was there a meaning right under the surface? It seems like the pictures of land, the simple landscapes they sell in cities. 
When you look closely, you see all the little figures hidden in the lines. Do you know the little pictures I mean? A rock becomes a sleeping wolf, or a little cloud is a skull, and a line of trees marching in soldiers when you look closely. Did the day seem like that to you, Joseph? Full of hidden meanings? Not quite understandable? It's at this point that Elizabeth reveals that she's going to have a baby. She thinks about um, also how, uh, thinks about how precious a red-headed doll she once got for Christmas was for her. And this is contrasted with her upcoming child. But Joseph returns to talk about the tree. And for Joseph, the tree is the center of the farm. It's, it's, the, it's the heart of the farm. And as the chapter closes, Burton confronts his brother on his growing paganism and the fears he has for his brother's soul. So chapter 17, um, spring comes to the ranch. Elizabeth is preparing to have birth, so she must, she's like six months pregnant at this point. The metaphors here are pretty transparent. Spring for new life. Um, all of this only confirms in Joseph's mind of the spiritual connection he has with land and nature. Meanwhile, though, Elizabeth is terribly conflicted between her relationship with Joseph, his strange emerging religion, and her own faith. And she's drawn to this moss-colored rock. Um, kind of out in the woods. So if Joseph has the tree, Elizabeth has this moss-covered rock, and that's going to be a major um, center of much of the action in the last few chapters of, of this novel. Chapter 18. So we jump ahead to the summer. Joseph continues his paganism by associating his wife with the earth. All women, in his mind, become part of the land. Women in this condition, have a strong warmth of God in them. They must know things no one else knows, and they must feel a joy beyond any other joy. In some ways, they take up the nerve ends of the earth in their hands. So that, that's Joseph talking about his wife's upcoming um, motherhood. Now, as the baby finally comes, it's a hard birth, and you might think at this moment that Elizabeth is going to die, and then that's when I was reading this, I assumed this would be the end of, of, of Elizabeth. I, I have an overarching concern that for often for Steinbeck, women are either kind of whores or villains, especially as in, in Eastern Eden, or kind of symbols for things. And in this novel, you, the women really are kind of symbolic. Um, and it would have been right for her, you know, her to die for a new life. But she doesn't. I was surprised that she doesn't. She survives the childbirth. It is, um, you know, it's difficult to read the section and not assume that Elizabeth is a goner. It, it seems to fit the themes. But... Although she's bedridden, it was a hard birth, she is alive and well, and the baby, a boy named John, emerges. Now, John is originally raised by Elizabeth, and later in the novel, he's going to be raised basically by his sister-in-law, Rama. He doesn't, Joseph doesn't really have much of a relationship with him, um, except at one or two points in the novel where he does things with him. And the things he does with him are kind of weird. Elizabeth tells Joseph about her place in the woods and the green cover, the green moss-colored rock, which where she finds a degree of religious inspiration. Now remember that Elizabeth thought thinks of the rock when feeling insecure about Joseph. If you go back to when she first experiences it, she goes there at a time she's very insecure about Joseph and the future of her relationship, and she even wonders if he'll come back. She seems to want stability. The rock prevents that. Joseph, who takes the tree for his totem, focuses more on the cycles of life and death than the in the land. Um, and the, the tension between the, f the tree and the rock are, are going to be fulfilled in the second half of this novel. Okay, I had to stop there for a second. My, my daughter came down and wants to play baseball. Um, but I'm going to finish this episode and then go up and do that. Anyway, okay, chapter 19. Uh, 
in chapter 19, they name their son John. Um, and there's a kind of a back and forth about the meaning of the name John. And they, the characters conclude that John is either always a very good or a very bad person. Joseph wants to introduce their newborn son to the tree. Burton, however, is horrified this, horrified by this. Uh, on the one hand, afraid that he will fall out of the tree. That seems to be the surface concern. But there's a deeper concern that's revealed pretty quickly, which is that Burton thinks that Joseph is basically offering almost up a symbolic sacrifice to the tree of his son. Um, now, of course, you do have such sacrifices in the Christian tradition. So Burton would have been aware of this, right? You have uh, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. You have, um, and of course, the, the big one, God sacrificing his son to uh, redeem the sins of the world. And we'll return to this, this idea of sacrifice um, later in the novel. But here... Here Burton talks about it. He says, On your head then, Elizabeth, my brother's denying Christ. He's worshipping as the old pagans did. He's losing his soul and letting in the evil. And then the hanging of sacrifices, the pouring of blood, the offering of every good thing to this tree is a simple thing. I've seen you sneak out of the house at night and I've heard you talk to the tree. Is that a simple thing? And the offering of your own firstborn child to the tree, is that a simple thing too? He's getting quite worked up over this and he thinks the, he's crossing this line towards full-blown paganism, especially when he, when he does the sacrifices. Um, even if the sacrifice is really only a symbolic thing for Burton, it's pure blasphemy. Burton decides to leave the family and start a farm elsewhere with his wife. He talks about a rot that has infested their father and has now infested Joseph, and he fears it will infest his son and be passed on to him. Now, as he leaves, we don't really find this out till the next chapter, but as he leaves, he chops up the roots, the base of the tree to kill the, to kill the tree. In chapter 20, um, Burton leaves and Joseph regrets the breaking up the family. He, he does have love for his family, even though often it comes off as a very kind of symbolic or metaphorical kind of love. The same way when his brother died, his response was, well, a homestead needs graves, right? It's not really home unless you have the dead buried there. So Benjay's being buried is part of that. Um, he did now, but he does notice as he sees his brother go away that there's something wrong with the tree. He takes a closer look at it and he sees that the trunk was chopped at the roots, so the tree will die. The culprit for this crime against the tree is assumed correctly to be Burton, who believes that the tree is a threat to his brother's soul. Thomas is much more angry at this crime than Joseph, though, who, you know, it's really weird all, all the time how. Joseph doesn't seem to take anything personally or directly. Thomas regrets that a good tree was, was harmed and killed. Joseph sees everything in such a naturalistic terms. He simply sighs and thinks Burton's punishment will come in time. It's kind of like the same attitude uh, to Juanito killing his brother. Chapter 21. Uh, the next winter arrives and it is, so we jump ahead in time again. It's the next winter and it's much drier. Uh, the previous winter was, was quite wet, and that provided a good foundation for um, the next year's harvest. Uh, so there's deep concerns here that they basically won't be able to have enough hay and grazing land for the, for the cows uh, because it's too dry. So the remaining two brothers worry about the future of the water table. A dry winter will make for a poor harvest the next year. Elizabeth, meanwhile, is overworked at home as well, thanks to Alice leaving them to await the return of her husband, Juanito. And Elizabeth at this point goes into a long confession about her, to Joseph about her love of the rock, her relationship to the rock, which she both loves and, and fears. She says, 
Well, as I say it, it was my condition. When I was carrying my child, things, little things grew huge. I didn't find the path going in. I broke my way through the underbrush, and then I came into a circle. It was quiet, Joseph, more quiet than anything I've ever known. I sat in front of the rock because that place seemed saturated with peace. It seemed to be giving me something I needed. And I loved the rock. It's hard to describe. I loved the rock more than you or the baby or myself. And this is harder to say. While I sat there and went into the, went into the rock, I, when I sat there, I went into the rock. The little stream was flowing out of me, and I was the rock, and the rock was, I don't know, the rock was the strongest, dearest thing in the world. Well, I must have stayed there a long time, because the sun moved, and it seemed only a moment to me. And then the feeling of the pace changed. Something evil came into it. Something malicious was in the glade. Something that wanted to destroy me. I ran away. I thought it was after me. The great crouched rock. And when I got outside, I prayed. Oh, I prayed a long time. So, that's that. They go to visit the rock together. While there, Elizabeth falls, slips on the moss, slips on the rock, and breaks her neck. She dies instantly. And, I mean, that that's that. Elizabeth dies. She's sacrificed uh, to the rock, perhaps. He returns to the house with Elizabeth's body, despairing that Rommel will need help with the baby, and still worried about the lack of water. Uh, Joseph restates what he observed when Benjamin dies, that a home requires graves, and that later on, Rama comes, his sister-in-law comes to comfort Joseph, and they eventually have sex. Um, he says she does this to make him whole again, and she also says that there is a need. He has a need. I want nothing now. You are complete again. I wanted to be a part of you, and perhaps I am, but I do not think so. Go to sleep now. In the morning, come to breakfast. So even though this very dramatic thing she does, sleeping with her husband's brother, she kind of does in a very matter-of-fact way. It's kind of interesting to read and uh, a little bit shocking. But it tells us a lot about Rama. Rama is very much like her husband. Um, not overly sentimental and always, you know, about doing what needs to be done, right? And it's not surprising that she's the one who takes over care for, for John. There's not really anyone else there who could do it anyways. Chapter 22. After the funeral, the farm enters into the deepest, a deeper crisis due to the lack of rain. And the solution seems to be either to buy hay, which they really can't afford, the price has gone too high because of the drought, or to drive the animals west to find grazing land. And they, they, they talk to a man, Ramos, who's experienced with that. Uh, and he has a, his own story about how his son killed himself. So we got a, the theme of suicide entered in here, which is, of course, going to be important later on in the novel. Now, Joseph is making these preparations. Basically, they decide they're going to have to do this. Uh, occasionally, they find dead cows. Uh, at one time, they find 10 dead cows. So it's a really crisis moment for this, this farm. If they want to survive, they're going to have to drive the animals, at least to um, find pasture land nearby, if not all the way to San Joaquin, which is what they eventually did do. They know that to do that means losing a big chunk of their harvest. I think Ramon estimates to lose like half of their cows if they do that. I don't know if that was common or if it's just the, the nature of, of that business. Prob you know, of course, there's going to be some loss if you're driving your cattle far away. Um, but they do try to look for alternatives nearby and they go around and they run into this old man who is very interesting, fascinating kind of character. Thomas sees him as crazy, but Joseph is very, very much interested in him. Well, he seems to capture small animals and, and sometimes sacrifice them. He even like sometimes kills like pigs and things and he sort of sacrifices them 
to the earth. And he tries to explain why he does this to Joseph. At first, he doesn't really share it because he thinks Thomas thinks I'm crazy, so I don't want to do that. But he, he finds Joseph interested, and so he kind of opens up to him a little bit. He says, you know what? Okay, you really want to know why I watch the sun? Why I kill some little creatures as it disappears? I don't know, he said quietly. I have made up reasons, but they aren't true. I have said to myself, the sun is life, and I give life to life. I make a symbol of the sun's death. Joseph broke in. Those were words to clothe a naked thing, and this thing is ridiculous in clothes. You see it. I gave up reasons. I do this because it makes me glad. I do it because I like to do it. You understand it. I tried to tell myself once. My listener couldn't see it. I do it for myself. I can't tell that it's not, that it does not help the sun. But it's for me. In the moment, I am the sun. Do you see? I, through the beast, am the sun. I burnt in the death. Now you know. So that, that kind of ends that chapter. Um, they decide at the end of the chapter, actually, to go to, to, to drive the cows to, to San Joaquin. Chapter 23. Um, the encounter with the crazy man convinces Joseph to stay on the land. He believes that he has failed the land and he cannot leave well. It still has some life left in it. And so um, that's what he does. He said, something has failed. I was appointed to care for the land and I have failed. I won't leave it. I'll stay with it. Maybe it isn't dead. I wonder if the little stream is gone, if it still flows. The land is not dead. I'll go to see it pretty soon. And then he talks to Rama about the tree. And he says, well, the tree was killed. Burton killed the tree. But maybe that's not the real heart of the, of the farm, of the land. Maybe the rock is the heart of the land. So he thinks there's a circle in the grove, a great rock in the circle. And that rock killed Elizabeth. The land is struck. The land is not dead, but it's sinking under a force too strong for it. And I am staying to protect the land. It's all kind of crazy talk, but if you understand Joseph, I suppose it, it makes a, a degree of sense. So he stays back uh, with the homestead. In, uh, th so jumping to chapter 24, he stays with the homestead and he gets reports from Thomas. Uh, one of these is the shocking news that like half the herd has been lost. Something like 400 head of cattle or something are lost. It's a really huge chunk of their, of their herd. Joseph begins to despair that the land is lost. Juanito returns and suggests that maybe God can help, that he should see Father Angelo and pray for the health of the land. But this turns out to be a big disaster. Um, Father Angelo comes in good faith with the hopes of maybe doing some kind of prayer, a prayer set that hoping that that would um, at the very least give Joseph a bit of security. Joseph says this, how do you know the rains will come? Because that, that's kind of Angelo's Response, like, have faith, right? God provides that kind of line. He says, how do you know the rains will come? I tell you, the land is dying. The land does not die, the priest said sharply. But Joseph looked at angrily at him. How do you know? The deserts were once alive because a man is sick often and each time he gets well. Is that proof that he never will die? Father Angelo got out of, got out of his chair and stood over Joseph. You are ill, my son, he said. Your body is ill and your soul is ill. Will you come to the church and make your soul well? Will you believe in Christ and pray help for your soul? My soul, Joseph leapt up and stood furiously before him. To hell with my soul. I tell you, the land is dying. Pray for the land. And then Angelo kind of throws up his hand saying, well, God's business is with souls and man, not, not really the land. So um, 
not much that can be happened there. It really turns out to be a disaster. Um, now, interestingly, the last thing in the novel is Angelo thinking about Joseph and, and basically kind of praying for him and hoping the best for him. So it's it doesn't seem to be a totally broken relationship, but there doesn't seem to be a foundation for these two characters to really resolve their theological differences. Chapter 25. Um, Joseph goes to the rock that killed his wife, the one he now sees as the heart of the land. And when he reaches the rock, he simply sacrifices himself uh, on top of it. He slits his wrists, he bleeds into the ground, and and at that moment the rains begin. Here it says, um, When he had rested a few moments, he took out his knife again, and carefully, gently opened the vessels of his wrist. The pain was sharp at first, but in a moment its sharpness dulled. He watched the bright blood cascading over the moss, and he heard the shouting of the wind around the grove. The sky was going gray. And time passed, and Joseph grew gray, gray too. He lay on his side with his wrist outstretched, and looked down the long black mountain range of his body. Then his body grew huge and light. It arose into the sky, and out of into it came a shrieking rain. I should have known, he whispered. I am the rain. And yet he looked down at the mountains of his body where the hills fell into the abyss. He felt the driving rain and heard it whipping down, pattering on the ground. He saw his hills grow darker with moisture. Then a lancing pain shot through the heart of the world. I am of the land, he said, and I am the rain. The grass will grow out of me in a little while. And the storm thickened and covered the world with darkness and with the rush of waters. And that's sort of the novel. There's a short chapter 26, which is all Father Angelo just observing the storm. And he thinks, his, his, the final thoughts of the novel, is he's thinking how happy Joseph would be now that the rains have, have come. Well, the idea of sacrificing oneself to land um, is, of course, common enough in pagan um, traditions. The idea of sacrificing to oneself is common as well, and I couldn't help but think about this. Um, he sees himself as tied to the land. He sacrifices himself to to save the land, which he sees as he's invested in. He's the guardian of. So it's a little bit different. It, it's more of a self-sacrifice, I guess, but um, for, for some other entity, in this case, the land. But um, sacrificing oneself is, is not uncommon in folklore. You have it in Christianity, of course, God sacrificing himself in the form of Jesus for the sins of others to undo the need for sacrifices in the future. And of course, in Norse mythology, you have Odin sacrificing himself to himself in order to discover ruins. That's a, a famous story from Norse mythology. But anyway, that's the story. Its central theme seems to be the relationship between the farmer and the land. And I'm not entirely sure how to think about this. Not to get too deep into environmental history, but it's enough to say that farmers have not always been the best stewards or caretakers of the land. Now, I don't want to suggest we need to go back to some kind of harmony with nature. Certainly, um, agriculture has provided certain benefits um, to civilization, and one of them including culture and art and technology. But there's hardly a sustainable relationship between the land and the farmers. Um, I used to work with uh, a person um, at, at a university who sort of believe that, you know, students will grow up to be more ecological if they get their kind of hands dirty, if they, if they work with the land. And she would do field trips and like ethics courses where they'd go and just farm. And her, her idea was that this would kind of give them in touch with land and they'd develop a more environmentalist attitude. Uh, basically, I think this is kind of ridiculous. Um, You know, historically, they're just the relationship between land and farmers is destructive. 
right? Um, I think, is it, I forget who wrote it. Um, there's a Chinese historian, a uh, historian of China. He's, he's, a, he's a Westerner. Um, El Elvin, is it? Let me look it up. Yeah, I looked it up. It's Mark Elvin. The book's called The Retreat of the Elephants. And it's about, it's basically an ecological history of China. It's a, it's a really great book. But the thesis is simple enough. It's just that as farming and agriculture spread throughout China, the forest disappeared, and so did the elephants. So the Retreat of the Elephants is the other side of the coin of the advance of agriculture. And that's, you know, just the way it was in Chinese history. And certainly we have that in the westward migration as well. So I don't know if, if, if Steinbeck thinks there really is this kind of mystical relationship. I don't think so. In, in dubious battle, it's pretty clear that farming is, is a business, right? And the farmers don't have any special tie to it. They're just migrants, right? You have that in mice, in mice and men. There's this desire to have land. It's kind of tied up with masculinity and prosperity. And people want to get in out of this, this uh, life as migrant workers but never breaches this level of mysticism. So I don't know. It's kind of anomalous, I suppose. Uh, but anyways, I, I, I don't fully know how to get my head around this. And maybe someone out there can help me uh, give their feelings about this novel. I find it a bit odd. Cause, and so you have a bit of it here, but in so many of the novels, he's interested in this kind of collective consciousness almost right the collective experience that's why he was he was interested in the strike in, in dubious battle and you have elizabeth kind of talking about that a little bit here when they have that party that fiesta but this very individualist relationship between the with the farmer and the land you know i don't really I've, i don't remember seeing it elsewhere um in Stein, steinbeck maybe in east eden with trask but even then i don't think it goes to this level um Certainly, well, in any case, we have a novel here about a farmer who is obsessed with pagan, chthonic, I mean, kind of land, of the land, worship. And there are good reasons to think that our ancestors worshipped the land long before they had worshipped the sky gods. Some feminist theorists talk about, you know, kind of the worship of chthonic gods, the gods of the land, the gods of the harvest, the gods of the cycles of nature as being more feminine and more associated with uh, women. The sky gods, Zeus, the Abrahamic gods, these are much more distant gods, uh, always much more male, right? If you look at the Clothonic, certainly the Druids were Clothonic worshippers. Uh, they actually would dig things on the ground and put stuff as kind of sacrifices underground. One of the earliest Greek gods, some of the earliest Greek gods were Clothonic gods, Gaia and Pan and... Persephone. Persephone is associated, of course, with the harvests and the nature. So the feminist argument, as I recall it, is that these earth gods and more female deities got taken over by, by male gods. And they, th they think this is kind of in the folklore, right? Gerda Lerner talks about this. So anyways, overall review. I don't know if this is, it's probably one a lot of people who read Steinbeck miss. They don't know about it. I think it's worth looking at. I, I, don't really know how to get my head around what he's trying to say here entirely. Um, is is Joseph a model? I don't know. It's it's is this the end result of kind of obsession about the land? Is this America obsessed with the land to to almost a religious a religious obsession with the land? I mean that might be a place he's going with this. I, I think, and I didn't even think about that till I was reviewing of Mice and Men, um, because in there you have this dream throughout, right? 
of, of Lenny and George, this dream of owning land. I mean, that's the runs throughout that whole novel. And is this the end result of that obsession for land? Um, certainly in the pastures of heaven, you have the same idea of people kind of seeking out the ideal, the ideal existence in the, in the countryside and then having that fail, blow up in their face. So I don't know, I liked it. I, I certainly enjoy it. I, I think there's issues with the female characterizations. I think there's issues. I, I mean, I, I think Joseph is, is basically irrational um, and a bit, a bit nuts. Um, but that may just come out of my materialism and my skepticism of any kind of spiritualism, Christian or, or pagan. But anyways, moving on. The themes of this novel. The rule mystic. Uh, I mentioned the rule mystic uh, a little bit with Pastures of Heaven, maybe. It, it certainly came up with, came up in the, oct- the octopus, where you have a really clear example of the rule mystic. So this is not a character invented by Steinbeck. Uh, he certainly would have been familiar with Frank Norris, another California writer. Um, I, I I very much doubt he didn't know Frank Norris very well, although I can't prove it. I, so he would have had that character. And what was his name? Vanamy or something. Go back to my reviews on the octopus for that. Um, another theme, westward migration. The, the Wayne family started with started in Vermont and they moved to the west. The whole family picks up and moves to the west. So we got migration again. And um, I think every Steinbeck novel of the 30s, and, and certainly, East, they're all about migration, act, mo- mobility, movement, right? I, I just zipped through a bunch in my head. Maybe the one set in Norway during the Nazi occupation is a bit different. But even there, you have Nazis kind of entering and becoming, trying, you know, becoming part of a community, you know, for, well, I would say for better or for worse. But, you know, it's mostly bad. But they, they are, they're kind of the migrants in that case, dealing with a, a native population. Um, certainly all the books in this first volume of the Library of America edition of Steinbeck's works are all about mobility in one way or another. Um, and it's not always a happy thing. It's usually corresponds with disappointment and frustration and aimlessness and unhappiness and, and violence, uh, various discriminations. So what else? Family. Family is a big theme here. Uh, Joseph is trying to create a, a family homestead. We've seen this desire before in Pastures of Heaven. Of course, the we have the family of kind of coming together of different types. You know, the you have the religious person, the mystic. We have the hard-headed, practical person, and the, the wastrel. You know, all families, I suppose, have this kind of mix of people. Um, the fact that the wives tend to follow the characteristics of their husbands is maybe a bit problematic here but um, maybe that's an element of of family cohesion for him the idea that homesteads kind of need graves right there's you need to be part of the land you need to have the stability you need to be grounded in a way for a family to be secure the the white sides in pastures of heaven believed that the house all right the homestead was important for like a dynasty almost um Gender and sexuality plays a big role here. Um, certainly sexuality and reproduction is a major theme in this novel, especially as it's associated with with the land and with the cycles of nature, right? The Elizabeth gives birth in the summer, right? Um, the rains of the winter give birth to the plants of the summer, right? In the same way that Elizabeth got pregnant in the winter and then she gives birth in the summer, right? 
and she becomes of like the child matures in the spring right it's the the birth of that child is paralleled with the cycles of nature right of course more practically we have the relationship between these men and these women um which we see women being seduced we see uh women kind of taking on the characteristics of their husbands or maybe it was the other way around i don't you know we see women being forced into domestic labor uh, we see Rama basically being forced to care for her nephew. Um, really, without her will, she just kind of took it as her job. She, she never really questioned whether Joseph should be the primary caregiver. She just picks up John and basically takes over as the caretaker. Uh, we have childbirth presented as a threat um, to the life of Elizabeth, and it nearly does kill her. So if you were wanting to do a feminist interpretation of this text, I think there's plenty of material here to, to work from, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, you might get a little bit from Steinbeck's intention if you want to do that, but I think the portrayal of, of women in this novel can be something that can be critiqued um, and may say something about gender relations of, of the time. Religion is a theme here, too, and especially sacrifice, the religious sacrifice. Uh, that's, of course, associated with paganism, generally. But you have sacrifice in the monotheistic traditions as well, don't you? you Christianity has kind of one big sacrifice. Um, but Islam, I think people on the Hajj still have to like buy the sacrifice tickets to sacrifice a goat or something. And then they give the meat to the, the poor. So there's still these sacrifices in various religious traditions. Um, and of course, in this novel, the sacrifice works, right? It, it'd be a very different novel if he killed himself and no rains came, right? Steinbeck chooses to have the sacrifice at least apparently work, um, which, I don't, again, I don't really know what to make of this. And maybe someone who's an expert of this or has come across this novel before maybe has some ideas. And finally, the environment, just the, the, the importance of the environment for these farmers, the, their dependence on the environment, how a whole family could be brought low by you know by a bad season right um the how fragile everything is the fragility of the herd right hundred just driving them to the west to find just keep them alive kills most of them right the the environment is in charge here right and the only way joseph has to really turn the tide against the environment is you know slitting his his wrists um, what else? Race is an issue. I, I didn't write this down initially, but race is an issue here in the character of Juanito. Um, I, I won't say much about this because it's such a big theme in Tortilla Flat, but you have a very similar uh, term, like sentences used in Tortilla Flat and in To God Unknown about race. Here we have, a, you know, the way Juanito emphasizes his Castilian origin. Um, and in such, Juanito is a paisano, right? A, a, a Californian of, of, of Spanish and Indian descent. Um, but as you find out in Tortilla Flat, the emphasis is always on the Spanish. Um, we do have kind of an interracial environment here in California. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the story, too. Well, that does it. Kind of a long episode here, so I apologize. But I think there's a lot to say here. Um, and it's, it's a meaningful novel. It's, it's Again, it's going to be one that most people are going to miss if they read Steinbeck. And, you know, they, people read Of Mice and Men. They read East of Eden. They, Grapes of Wrath. They might read In Dubious Battle. They don't really read these others. So I think they're worth looking at. They're a lot of fun. So uh, in the next episode, uh, we'll be doing, I, I think it will be two episodes, but it might just be one, probably two on tortilla flat 
which was Steinbeck's kind of breakout novel. It's the one that really um, made him well-known and started uh, him on a career of kind of bestsellers, made him nationally known. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you have comments, if you can help me with this novel, I'm, I'm a little bit baffled. I'm not 100%. I mean, I know what happened in the story, but I'm uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I, I don't know how to feel about it at this point. But maybe you can help me with that. Um, but if not, that's fine. Uh, but leave your comments uh, here, or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. If you want to know more about the theme of collected consciousness, you might want to look at my series on the Solar Lottery, the Philip K. Dick novel. That's part of the Philip K. Dick book club. And that is there. The theme of collectivity comes up a lot in Steinbeck. And it's interesting that I'm, I'm covering Solar Lottery at the same time I'm covering this because both deal with collective consciousness and experiences. So head on over to that side of my podcast and listen to those episodes. You might enjoy them. Uh, again, thanks for listening and I'll see you in 100 pages. Sit beside and stream See yeah, waters rise Listen to the pretty sound of music as you fly